Hello and welcome to episode 343 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. This episode will air on Monday, March 28th, 2022. That means you have uh, still about a month to decide whether you want to register for the June 2022 LSAT. No reason to register right now. You've got all the way up until Wednesday, April 27th to decide whether you're ready. Your practice test scores are going to be the thing that tell you whether you're ready. Um, you don't need to ask us like, will I be ready? <laughs> you, you can <laughs> do practice tests and you, you can look at the numbers and you can figure yeah. out whether you're ready or not. And you have all the way up until April 27th to decide whether you want to register for that June, 2022 test. Okay. Um, day one listeners, we have an assignment for you. Uh, please email us questions for Judy, the YouTube lawyer. We are interviewing Judy tomorrow. That is Tuesday, March 29th. So if you're listening to this show on the day it airs, which is March 28th, uh, we need your help. We need questions for Judy, the YouTube lawyer. You can email help at thinkinglsat.com if you want to uh, get a question on the show for Judy. And we really do appreciate those questions. We, we need them. So thank you for those. Uh, last thing before we dive into the content, you can come to my April 2022 LSAT study group that happens every other Thursday, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. And we can talk about where you are and where you're going and how to get from one to the other. All you need is a free LSAT demon account. So LSATdemon.com, register for that. Come and yeah. talk to me. Today on the show, man, we had one hell of a guest. Uh, third appearance from actual lawyer, Rachel Gezersay. Not only is she an actual lawyer, she's an actual law professor at USC, an adjunct there. And uh, she's the author of the Law Career Playbook. Um, we also had a bunch of mailbag stuff and we did a real LSAT question, uh, but that's all going to be at the end of the show. Uh, ben, do you think we should do anything else before we just dive right into no. Rachel? Let's do it. All right, let's go. So we've already been recording. I, we, I think we can probably use some of the stuff we've already talked about, but we have a guest on the show. This is your third appearance on the show, uh, Rachel Gezersay. Um, Rachel, thank you for coming back. You're a trial attorney specializing in catastrophic personal injury and wrongful death cases. Wow. You're also... <laughs> An adjunct professor at USC, and you are, and this is how we found about found found you in the first place. You are the author of the Law Career Playbook, which is available on Amazon. Uh, welcome back, Rachel. Hi, yeah, happy to be here. We have tons of questions from listeners. Uh, you want to dive straight into those, or is there something that you want to talk about off the top? What do you think, Ben? Yeah, up to Rachel. Is there anything in particular you wanted to come and say? No, you know, I was just, I, I kind of just said it that I, you know, I'm, I'm just really happy. It's the third year anniversary of the book coming out and that the fact that people are still finding it useful. I didn't, I wrote it pre-pandemic and, you know, a lot has changed in these last three years since I wrote it, but I still feel like it's, it's really relevant to the job search and really not just the job search of finding any job, but finding a job that fits you and what you want out of this lawyer thing, right? Which to me is just the most important thing, um, especially now when the job market is great, you, you can harness it so much. There's so many more opportunities to really find that perfect fit job for young attorneys, which is really exciting. I like that idea of 
you know, just because the job market's great right now for lawyers doesn't mean that you should settle for like, <laughs> that. that's an even better reason to go get the book and make sure that you're finding the perfect fit for you. You don't want it if it's not the perfect no, fit. There's so many unhappy lawyers. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, I, I, and having spent my career in big law, you know, in the big sort of corporate environment and just being surrounded by just miserable people who should be really happy because they're making all this money. But it was just, you know, it's just not a good fit. To me, it's all about the fit, right? And and what makes you happy on a day-to-day basis. As you know, there's a lot of you know joy and fulfillment you can get from this job, but you gotta find that good fit. Okay, so this ties in perfectly then. We have a question here from um, listener Alex that says, Hey guys, I had a couple questions for Rachel that I'm hoping you can ask for me. One. How do you figure out which firm is the best fit for you? What factors aside from compensation and location should you take into consideration? Yeah. We can start with that one and then read the other one. Sure. I mean, you know, and part of this is, you know, in, in the book, I talk about this, a lot of it sort of putting aside the firms, you really kind of have to start with yourself first. Uh, and I have a bunch of exercises in there to sort of figure out, you know, what is it that I want? What do I want to do? A lot of times students don't even know, like they have a sense, maybe they have a family member who's a lawyer, or they've seen stuff on TV, but they, you know, they think maybe I want to do trials, but they don't really know. But it's sort of doing these sort of internal exercises to figure out what, what's exciting to me, what do I want to do, right? And then you combine that with then some online research, right? You go on LinkedIn, there's all kinds of resources, websites, firm websites themselves to sort of start to look and research about what what the firms are, who these people are out there. But then you have to combine that, your your personal search, your online search, and then you have to set up these informational interviews with people who are working at the firms themselves to find out kind of the insider info on what it's like to actually work at this place, right? Because it isn't going to be, you're not going to find, all firms look good on their corporate websites and on their firm websites, you know, all places have, you know, you know, a good sort of marketing feel for how to present themselves. But really when you're talking to the people, that's how you find out whether it's a good fit. And that's a core tenet of, of the book in my process is, you know, it's twofold. One, you're gathering information about these places and about what these people do, but you're also building a network, right? So even if you don't wind up working there or you don't find the perfect firm, you're meeting people and you're strengthening this network of people who will help you find that perfect firm and that perfect job. So it's almost like too obvious, but compensation, sure. Location, sure. But who are the actual people that you're going to be working with 80 hours a week? Right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, is the, is the culture there? Is, is the, is the vibe there? Is the feeling there something that's going to fit with, you know, what's going to be comfortable and going to make you thrive as an attorney and as a person working there the 80 hours a week or whatever it's going to be. And it's different every single place. And that's why it's so important to, to use these informational interview tools to meet people. And the, the, the beautiful thing now about the pandemic and about Zoom and about these sort of online tools is that people are much more comfortable. You no longer have to go meet for 15 minutes and grab coffee, right? You can set up a Zoom interview. Attorneys are so comfortable with this now. And it's easier. You know, people can set aside these times to meet with you just on Zoom and you can just meet people and chat with them and get to know them on this platform. Uh, and it's mm-hmm. just, it opens up a whole world of access of being able to meet people and build your network because of these online tools. It's so much easier for them to say yes to for a million different reasons. 
including if they meet you and they immediately are like, they don't like you. They don't, if they're like, Oh, they could just close the laptop. It's just like, goodbye. They're just like done. I mean, I don't think that they hope to do that, but they know when they say yes to your meeting, they're like, well, if this doesn't go the way I want it to go, this is going to be a 90 second investment. And I just like, I'm going to say, good. Oh, I'm sorry. I've been interrupted. I got to go. And then they're just well, boom. Bye. And <laughs> vice over. versa too. I mean, it, it allows students and, and, you know, new lawyers entering the market to just build out a bigger network. You just have much more access to people that you didn't have before and all kinds of people, junior associates, partner level people, you know, it, it's, it's, they're, they're all available to you if you approach them in the right way and it doesn't even have to be people in your own community i mean people having to do these coffee meetings or these lunch meetings it was always a bit of a burden especially if you're going to move cities or move you know to to out now you can just meet with people anywhere it's pretty amazing you know you're talking about all these um things that have changed that make it easier to do these interviews but i can imagine that the vast majority of people who are listening to us right now and and just even worse, the people who aren't listening <laughs> or seeking out information at all, right, are are likely to be overwhelmed or discouraged and not interested in doing this research, reaching out to these people and scheduling these interviews, right? I, imag- do you, I, I imagine there's got to be people who hear your approach and are like, no, thanks. Like, that just sounds like too much for me. What? Look, I, I think it, 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 it's, it's too much if you think about it, you know, from the 10,000 foot point, like, oh, I don't want to do this. This is too hard. But that's why it's all about incremental work, right? Um, mm-hmm, and so, mm-hmm. you know, even at the level, you know, and I, I've always been a huge proponent for people who are just at the beginning taking the LSAT, for example, you person about to take the LSAT have the most time you're ever going to have in this journey to law school and beyond to being a lawyer, right? And so what a beautiful thing that you could take an hour a day to incrementally just start to do the online research, do the internal sort of getting clear and, you know, figuring out what you want, and then slowly reaching out every day, a little bit incrementally to start building out this massive tree that's only going to bear fruit, continue to bear fruit for you as you work through this process. Then it's not. So it's really an investment yeah. of so much more than just that first job or or whatnot. You're you're building this safety net, really, right? For future jobs. Yeah, absolutely. And I am. Look, when I wrote the book, you know, in, in the 2015 2016 period, I was still working in big law, and I at that point knew I wasn't a happy lawyer. Like I knew I was actually a miserable lawyer with this so-called amazing job, but I I was not a good fit for me. And yet I never could have imagined that, you know, three years later, I used my same techniques and my same network that I had built out all those years in big law to transition to my current job, which is the best thing I have ever done. And I could, and the only reason why I was able to do it as a senior lawyer was because I had built out the safety net and built out this network of people who actually helped me make this massive transition from defense to plaintiff, not an easy Mm -hmm. thing to do. And it was all because of that safety net network that I had built over all those years. Hmm. I, yeah, I, one thing that I see a lot in young folks is they, or you see people complaining about this on the internet. It's almost like a, a meme or something. It's like, well, but I applied for 500 jobs and I didn't get a single whatever. And it's like, yeah, that's because you just waited for jobs to be posted then sent in random like resume generic, drops. <laughs> un 
Considerate, inconsiderate, <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, resumes and letters. You weren't even probably a good fit for 90% of those jobs that you applied for because you didn't do any due diligence up front. So then now they're getting a thousand resumes for this one job and they know that 990 of these are not a good fit. So of course they didn't even email right. you back. Like, right. It's all it's, about specificity and tailoring. I mean, that's the thing. And, you know, you never... People, it, it always goes back to that same thing. What's going to be a good fit? You, you really have to create this opportunity for yourself, you know? And then, then when you do that, when you actually are targeting and, you know, really figuring out what you want and your all of your materials, your resume, your cover letter is targeted and built towards this narrative of what you want, then you actually access this thing, this phenomenon that I talk about, that the hidden job market, right? It's this idea of it's not posted jobs. Like the job I have now, which is my absolute dream job, was not a posted job at all. It was a, it was an opportunity that arose that my friend in my network knew about that they this firm needed someone at my level with my exact expertise to step in. It was never posted anywhere. It was just I just put it out there that this is what I wanted. They heard about the opportunity and then it connected. No one else applied for this job but me. Right. And that's that's the concept of the hidden job market is the, there's all of these opportunities out there that will arise for you. And it's not magic. Right. It's not you know, it's not <laughs> some people would say it's manifesting. But really what it is, it's doing the legwork of building out, putting it out there, being very specific and then connecting in with these jobs that are there. But that, you know, a thousand other people aren't applying for. It's a perfect fit for you. It's the difference between passively waiting for the jobs to reach out to you versus you actively reaching out right. for them, right. right? Right, absolutely. And just being very tailored and specific. And then the other thing, and I talk about this a lot in the book, it's not always a perfect process. A lot of times, you know, you'll think you want something, you'll think you want to work somewhere, and then, you know, you meet the people there, you do these informational interviews, and you find out it's not a good fit, Right. And suddenly your dreams are shattered and you're like, oh no, I thought I wanted to do this. And actually I don't, this sounds horrible. Well, I call that iteration process. Like you just, you go back to the drawing board and you think, okay, what was it that I didn't want or that I didn't like about that? Now I know I've learned this about myself. Let me go try something else. Let me go see. Uh, it, at least you're figuring that out then, right? As opposed to having gotten the job and then wading through that sometimes years, right, right. years, misery, and then feeling trapped, you know, the whole concept of the golden handcuffs, like I'm in this job that I hate. Um, and I can't leave, which uh, this is something a lot of lawyers suffer from that. And it's really sad. It's actually to me a tragedy because it shouldn't, you know, being on the other side of it and being so happy with what I do now and having so many aspects of my personality and what I love to do being utilized. That's tragic. When, when you don't, when you go working every day, so many hours and you're not doing that and you don't feel useful. It's the worst. Most things in life are no's. Most, most potential jobs, most potential relationships, most potential places that you're going to live. The whole, the whole point is to go around and try a bunch of things with as little investment as you possibly can and figure out like you want to find out that it's a no. I mean, it's a, it's like a tenet of um, entrepreneurialism that you, most businesses are going to fail. So you want to get to that failure point as quickly as you possibly can with as little investment as you possibly can. Most wrong, most answers on the LSAT are wrong. Five answer choices, four of them are wrong. You need to figure out that they're wrong. 
you're not looking for the one that's right. You're looking for the, just, this is wrong. That's wrong. No, no, no way. Get out of here. And so what you're talking about is doing that exact same thing, but for your job search and instead of like just applying to a million random jobs and then hoping that you get every single one of them. I mean, the truth is most of those jobs are wrong for you. What are you even doing? Yeah. And it's a waste of time, right? There's an efficiency factor here. Um, And that's why the daily incremental work of really sort of narrowing this down and getting where you need to go is so important. And it's not just this huge mountain of thing, you know, that you have to conquer in one month. Better to do it over time, which is why, you know, the going back to the the perfect, to me, the perfect student is the student who's just starting out, right? Just about to take the LSAT, really embarking on this career to start flexing those muscles of incremental work towards this and you'll be so much better hmm. off. Yeah. The book, by the way, is called The Law Career Playbook. It's available on Amazon. Ben and I make zero dollars and zero cents off of recommending this book. We're not chilling for any purpose. We honestly believe that this will help all of our students. And that's why we keep talking about it on the show. We're halfway through uh, Alex's email. So here's another question. What steps should an aspiring litigator take before graduating law school? What do firms look for when hiring law school graduates as litigators specifically? Um, what do firms look for? I mean, I think a very, you know, okay, putting your, taking advantage in law school of the resources that would help hone those litigator skills. So, and, and when we're saying litig- litigator, I'm thinking, you know, trial attorney, someone who actually wants to litigate and take cases to trial. Although, you know, we all know on the defense side, uh, a lot of times cases settle on the plaintiff side too, but still the idea is honing those kinds of presentation skills. So taking trial advocacy classes, clerking for a judge, doing externships, um, you know, where you're actually getting those kind of skills, you know, whether it's at a public interest law firm or some kind of law firm that's going to get you those skills. I think firms, when they're looking at what you've done in law school with your time, they look on that, they, they really like that, right? And they, they see that you've taken initiative with that. Um, and then if you've had to work, a lot of times people have to work through law school. So then choosing those kinds of opportunities where you're working in a law firm or you're working as a paralegal or you're working as a clerk, you know, not just sort of whittling your time away. Cool. Yeah. Uh, we got two more emails from students. Ben, you want to read sure, one? Sure, yeah. This one's from Chris. Hello, LSAT Demon Team. My question for Rachel Guzersay is below. <laughs> Here we go. According to the National Association for Law Placement, 53% of law school graduate graduates who are 36 years old or older go into private practice or join firms with fewer than 10 attorneys. Only 17% join firms that employ more than 250 attorneys. Do you think this trend is due to student preference? Or is there a stigma towards second career slash older law students in the big law hiring process? Before you finish the email and before Rachel answers, Chris, your analysis, you have not demonstrated to me that there is any trend. Mm. (laughs) Chris has cited data points from older folks Without citing (laughs) younger folks. Without citing the data points from younger folks. I think we are meant to assume that that number is higher. Sorry, 
the 53% of law school graduates who are 36 years old or older go into private practice or join firms with fewer than 10 attorneys. Chris thinks that's bad. If he wants to go into big law, he's like, whoa, more than half of these people don't go into big law. Only 17% of them go into firms that employ more than 250 attorneys. Okay, but Chris, dude, what's the percentage <laughs> of just all law school graduates who are younger than 36 years who go into big law. If that and number is lower left out, then the trend is actually in the opposite direction, right? Exactly. So. <laughs> right. Just because that's a low number. I mean, this is like an LSAT question, right? But just because that number seems low, doesn't mean that it's a trend. And in fact, the trend could be exactly opposite. Okay. But do we know what the overall job placement rate is? Do we, do we have that background number? It's going to vary wildly school by school, by the yeah, way. Yeah, and uh, like, I, I just, I, my own experience with this, I was a second career older student, right? I don't, I don't think I was 36, but I was I was up there. And, you know, I just feel like, once again, you it's so easy, especially with rankings and data and all of this stuff when it comes to the job market and schools to get all caught up in that. But the reality is you make your own reality, right? You have to, once again, if you're interested in big law, I don't care whatever law school that you go to, whatever your grades are, you got to hustle, right? You got to hustle and you got to meet people in big law. You got to build out that network and you cannot rely on on-campus interviewing, the OCI thing. I mean, across the board, I've had students all over the country that I've mentored and they've gone to amazing law schools, highly ranked law schools, lower ranked law schools. Everyone hates OCI and it's not a guarantee. You got to build this out and assume and bring to the table, I mean, as a second career student, as an older student, you have so many things to offer that a big law firm and that a corporate law firm is going to love. And so I don't care what the trends are. If you present well in that interview and you're a good fit for that firm and you've met people at the firm and you've built out your network there and done informational interviews, you have such a good chance of landing something if there's an opening because you bring to the table experience and that's what firms want. So I just, I don't believe that. I just don't believe that there's a trend. I believe if you're the right person for it, you'll get something if there's an opening for you and you've done it right. So do you think that there, do you think that there is a stigma in general? No, not on older, not on older or second career students. I do not. I think there's definitely a stigma on, you know, the lower ranked law schools. (laughs) There's always been a stigma on that, right? As far as big law goes, big law is a snobby place, right? When it comes to hardcore grades and where your school, but it's still not, a, it's not, a, that stigma is not a complete barrier to entry. Although there are some big law firms that will never ever hire people unless you go come from certain schools. Very few. Chris uh, specifically says, do you want to finish the email, Ben? Yeah. Would a big law firm have doubts about an older law school's commitment to the environment of a first-year associateship? Thank you. An older law student, not an older law school. An older law student's Oops, commitment. Yep. To the, which I, so I understand that point, right? It's like, well, you're 45 years old. Can you actually handle what it would be like to be a first-year associate in the Why firm? Not? I mean, you would, you would have experience. You'd have... I would argue the flip side of that, someone who's never worked a day in their life who comes in and is now presented with having to be accountable and show up and be a team member and work hours and hours and hours and grind out. Wouldn't an, you know, someone with work experience who knows how to handle themselves in a work environment be a better pick for that than someone who's just kind of, 
you know, flounced in from never having worked anywhere. I, I don't know. I just I, I think that they that is very case by case and very much about, you know, what the needs are. Um, but I I don't think that that would work against you. I really don't. And not, you know, having been in that position, I don't think so. I think that they would love you. There you go. All right. Um, we have another email here from F. It says, how would you prioritize the factors that help one land a big law job, i.e. GPA, networking, journal? Is there a way to... Okay, so that's, that's the first question. And then we'll, we'll look at the second question from F. What, how do you prioritize... Let's say you're in school. You're a 1L. What's the most important thing? Is it your GPA? Is it your networking? Is it journal? Okay, so there's a couple, you have to unpack this a little bit, right? So there's, there's what, what, you, what is prioritized for you on on-campus interviewing, right? There's certain cutoffs for that, right? So to get those, those quick little interviews that would you know, get you in front of the big law firms and maybe get you a callback, GPA is gonna be really important. Where you go to law school is going to be important, whether you won't be on a journal yet, but maybe you'll because of your GPA, they know you'll be on law review the next year. Right. All of that's going to get you in the door for on campus interviewing. But look at my experience. Like I, I hardly had any on campus interviews at Southwestern where I went because there's just not a lot of big law firms who come there. And the ones that did their GPA cutoff, I didn't make. Right. But yet I self-generated all of these, I went, I call it straight to callbacks, but that, and there's, that's where the networking component comes in. So I had enough of a good GPA that through my networking, I was able to self-generate callbacks. And so it kind of, it really depends on where in the scale that you are. If you have a lower GPA, you got to hustle on the networking so that you can still get your materials because you're not going to get in through the OCI route. You, but you, but if you have a good enough GPA to meet the firm's cutoffs, you'll be able to get there through networking. So it's really just doing a self-assessment. Where are you at and where do you need to prioritize and where do you need to hustle to be able to get in front of those firms? It, it sounds to me like GPA is critical um, if, on, on many levels. So if you can prioritize that and network on top of it, you're really in the best position and right because you're even better than that you can do the networking before you even start law yeah. school yeah. that's my perfect person right who's who's flexing these muscles early 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 because look there's added benefits you're doing the networking you're meeting people and then through the networking you're going to get mentorship so meeting attorneys who've gone through this who maybe went to your law school they can sort of help guide you oh you're with that professor. Here's what I did in that person's class. Here's my outlines from when I was there. You know, don't do this. Don't do that. You know, you can actually get the added benefit of having a mentor guide you through, which will then raise your grades because. <laughs> and have a vested interest in you, right? If someone's actually taking the time to give you advice, they now want you to succeed. <laughs> uh, no, absolutely. And that's been my story. I mean, that's what's helped me every step of the way is people who actually were invested in me because I had reached out to them. Hmm. I'm so glad we're talking to you today, Rachel. I mean, our mission is not to like help people improve their LSAT by five points. Our, our mission is to really change people's lives and set them up for success in law, which largely includes not paying for law school, but also having an actual career once they get out. And um, we like to move fast around here. So we're still kind of brainstorming on all this, but I think we can announce that 
if you go to lsatdemon.com, you should be able to register for a free account and sign up for a class sometime in the future. We're not sure exactly when that's going to be, but we're going to do a class uh, at LSAT Demon for everybody, even if you have a free account. And uh, Rachel is going to teach a class about her basically using her book, the law career playbook as a text. So probably, what do you think, Rachel? It's going to be like a month or more out because we want to give people time to work their way through this, but you're going to need a copy of the book. You're going to need to register for this free account. And then you can come uh, a month or two or three or whatever it is down the road. I know you've got a busy schedule, but you can come and uh, ask Rachel any questions about uh, her book. And hopefully by that point, you, you already would have been working through the exercises. Like you'll have the beginnings of a network already, you know, before you even take the LSAT potentially. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I've, I've done this and I've, I've had students a lot of success. You know, you work through, you, you, you work. I, it, it, part, one of the chapters in my book is called the roadmap for reaching out. Right. And that is literally a step-by-step sort of incremental roadmap for how you do this and how you do it right, how you make mistakes, how you meet people, how you, you know, all of that is in there. And so if you work through that for a few months, then I can come in and troubleshoot with you and talk to you about how it's going. And, you know, we can work through some of the stuff that you're encountering and, you know, it's great. It's students have found it really helpful. So I'd love to do that. Amazing. Um, Okay. We're still working on F's um, email. So the answer to that first question is all of them, but networking before you even get to law school, uh, you're already late. That's one thing that I was shocked to learn when I was a 1L. First semester, 1L year, and people in like October, and people were showing up in suits. And I was like, why are you wearing a suit? And he's like, oh, because I have a coffee or I have a lunch or I have an interview interview what it's the first semester of 1L year and it's because this dude had already been networking you know on his way up to law school and that I was like way 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 behind that guy if I was going to be trying to right, get a job right. yeah you know look it, it is it's it's everyone does it a little bit differently and you have to do what you're comfortable with a lot you know that first semester of law school is whoa, you know, it's very, for a lot of people, the transition there can be very difficult. And maybe when you're there, it's good to just focus on getting acclimated and figuring out how to do well academically, because it is so important. But, you know, if you've, if you've flexed those muscles and sort of built a process before that, you can turn back to it once you're comfortable and doing well academically. Yeah. It wasn't because of the work that he was doing during the semester. It was because of the work that he had done over the summer or over the preceding years before even starting law school. I mean, it's like, I just, please don't people wait until law school starts. (laughs) You know, that's just, you're going to, there's plenty of pressure already in law school. You just don't want, you don't need to. You could sort of like pressure release valve that by starting this process way before law school even yeah. even begins. And there's many benefits. Okay. All right. So F continues. Is there a way to break through the locked in starting salary across the board? It seems that everyone in big law makes 215,000 to 225,000. I would imagine that some make more. How do they do it? 
Is it through networking? This question to me seems fantastical. I read that and I was like, really? You don't think 215 to 225 is not enough? Not good enough. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I remember, you know, when I first started all those many decades, you know, long time ago, it was 125,000, right? And I just thought that was so much money, you know? And then when I was in that summer, when I got my job, it went up to 165 and it was like, oh my God, you know, and now it's over 200. Look, I, you know, I cannot... Big law is its own animal on the salary side and each firm, you know, some firms, the firm I worked at Jones Day didn't pay bonuses and it was your, your sort of merit bonus was built into your salary. And so maybe you're making a bigger salary, but you make no bonus. And then other places you're making the, whatever, the, whatever, 225, whatever it is now, and you get a bonus. It's, it's all, you have to find that out. And, and, and in doing these informational interviews and meeting the people at the firm, you know, connecting with, with, you know, people who are first years, second years, third years, not that far out from where you are, you can get the real scoop of what compensation actually looks like. You know, they may not tell you exactly, they may have rules that they can't tell you what their salary is, but you can get a flavor and a feel for what compensation looks like at these various firms. And then, you know, sometimes data is actually published and it's not black box. And it's really, you know, what are you looking for? But you have to, with big law, you have to keep in mind that you're going to be working a lot of hours for that big, for those big money salaries, right? Um, and you know, for some people, that the big money um, on the billboard looks good, but when you actually look at the lifestyle and what you're doing for that big money, people find that it's not always the best fit. And there may be other, if it, you know, there may be other things out there for you, which is another reason to continue exploring and meeting people and figuring out where that fit is. That's that's interesting you say that because I I do remember. <laughs> At this, at, at one time in my life, when I was considering working in, at a law firm, I was interviewing, and I remember I actually even went to a law firm in another state, and I was talking to them, and they said, "Hey, look, our salary is a little bit lower than these other places that you're looking at," but, but, and who knows how how truthful they were being with me, but they were really trying to sell me on the point that this firm the the partners here are much more interested in a normal life and you know we're, we're we are <laughs> taking breaks on the weekend and so on and you know that was a big focus of the interview because they were tra- they're like look you're making less money but you're gonna live a life here and that's how some firms yeah everybody's got their niche in the market there, so there's value in that um for you know and maybe not maybe that's what you have that's why you a lot of this is self-assessment and you know what your comfort level is and what you want to do and what kind of investment you want to put in in those early years you know and so much of it isn't about money it's about training and opportunities like what kind of work are you going to be doing is it going to be fulfilling work are you going to learn how to become a litigator or become a deal maker? Are you going to learn that? Is this firm just going to churn you out? Are you just going to be a cog and you're just going to be churned out after a few years and get nothing out of it? There's there's no value in that either, right? You have to look at all of those factors beyond compensation, which is why mm-hmm. these informational interviews are so important because you're not going to get that from the firm website or from research. That really is from multiple conversations with people who work there or who have worked there. Mm-hmm. The book is called The Law Career Playbook. Uh, you can find Rachel Gezer say all over the place. Uh, Instagram is at Law Career Lab, Facebook, Rachel Gezer say, LinkedIn, Rachel Gezer say, Twitter, at Law Career Lab. Um, 
She's a networker, folks. <laughs> so there's lots of different ways you can network with her. You can also go to lsatdemon.com and sign up for a free account and register for her class, which is coming uh, in the unforeseen future. Go to Amazon right now and pick up uh, a copy of the Law Career Playbook, though. And um, it's actually a workbook, right? You start working your way through the actual book. Yeah, yeah. Um, probably the most investment, most valuable investment. No, no, I was going to say there's worksheets in it. Um, and some of them I've updated since then. So anyone who's interested, there's a spreadsheet that I will have to just email me. Um, and you can email me at my work, which is fine. It's, um, Gezer say at psblaw.com and I'll send you the updated spreadsheet because it's actually, um, programmed. The cool thing about the, the law career spreadsheet is you can actually all of these touches as you're starting to reach out and meet people in the industry and meet lawyers, you put it in the spreadsheet and you can schedule out um, using the the formulas that are in there. You can schedule out future meetings. So it's a really good way to stay accountable and stay in touch with this network that you're building. So I'll send that to people if they're interested. Did you say PLB law? PSBlaw.com. PSB yeah, Panache Boyle. That's my law firm that I'm working at now. Gezer say at psblaw.com. And now I have to ask you one more question before we let you go. I know people are going to be like, she gives out her, her email address. What the, is she crazy? What do you do, Rachel, for email management? How do you manage your emails? <laughs> so, um, not, not too well. Um, yeah, actually my Gmail looks worse than my, my, my work email, but you know, I, I, I have folders like we all do and I try to keep things filed, but it's, it is a struggle. Email's a struggle, but I always, you know, students look, I, I always say this and that's why I do throw it out there. You'd be surprised how, how many people don't take me up on these offers. So when people do, I'm very responsive because I just, I get it. I was there. I was there. I was in your shoes and, you know, in this job search and this job struggle, you know, any help that you can give and any help that I can give, um, I'm happy to do it because I know the struggle's real, but it's so worth it. Um, if you can find a good fit for yourself as a lawyer. Amazing. Sorry. Quick, quick comment here. I would imagine that's true for a lot of people that, um, our students would want to reach out to, right? They might think, oh, this person's so busy, they would never respond. But how many people are actually reaching out to them and saying, hey, I, I know about your firm, I know about what you do, and I want to learn more about it. Will you talk to me for 5, 10, 15 minutes? I imagine they probably don't get a lot of those requests, or I don't know. The 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 attorneys? or the, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's why people need to do this more, right? And especially, I think we started out talking about this, you know, especially now it's so much easier to get people to help you because they can just pop on Zoom, <laughs> right? So yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. People should do this and just make it a part of your daily practice. Just reach out to one or two people a day. I mean, I talk about building a pipeline in the book, right? You just, you have a target list of people and you just reach out one or two a day. You can imagine how big your network will be if you start doing that. Um, and no, not a mm. lot of people do it even today. Thanks so much, Rachel. Yeah, thank we you. We'll uh, talk to you Thanks. very soon. Really I hope. looking forward to that. Well, that was awesome. Yeah. Well, I think if we can get that, that book, the first chapter in the lessons, then it's just so easy. We send, we can promote, we can send out the class page, the class page links to the lesson page. And it's like, here you go. <laughs> Do it. There's no excuse. You don't even have to wait for the book. And then there's a link at the end to buy a book. It's good for her, but I also think it's good for us. We just have good content, you know? 
Hey, just a, uh, a real quick item here. You want to read this uh, blurb from Jennifer? Yeah, so we have some tutoring notes here from a student. Wh what is this? Well, this is from, yeah, this is a report okay. from uh, one of our tutors working with one of our students. Uh, yeah, sure. go ahead and read it. So this student um, is consistently practice testing in the upper 170s. But her highest official score in three attempts is a 170. Turns out she used to pause sections on her practice test to think about hard questions. Whoa. Yeah. What? Student also has a tendency <laughs> to talk to herself into and not and out of answers because she wants to believe everything she is reading is correct. Okay. So that's two separate <laughs> yeah, issues. Two. Let's talk about the first thing the first. The first one is, is very serious. Um, yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah. The reason why I put this on the agenda is that I, I read that and I recognized it as something that is probably true. Not always, but something that is probably true more often than we would like it to yeah. be. Yeah. Which is, this is a student who it's... Uh, Man, it's like cheating at solitaire. Yeah, you're playing your own game. Or <laughs> <laughs> cheating at Wordle. <laughs> or um, just, you know, like you're doing a PT and you're timing yourself because you know that you're, you should be timing yourself on your practice tests. But then there's just that one hard one. That's really interesting. Or maybe another hard one. And you just, your finger just sneaks up and you just hit the pause. Yeah. I mean, we added that pause <laughs> because <laughs> life uh, sometimes throws you challenges, right? Maybe your, uh, your roommate busts into the room with um, some crazy news. Yeah, but. <laughs> I don't know. Feature request. Yeah. I think we. Feature request. Yeah. The option to disable pause <laughs> when you're starting the section. Yeah, yeah. we w <laughs> we wanted to make it uh, convenient for you to use the demon in a reasonable and practical way, assuming that you were looking out for your own best interests. But uh, sometimes we don't do that, do we? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's just it's unintended consequences, right? Like we we yeah. I, I perfectly understand why it's there. And I, I'm glad it's there because we don't want to be like so crazy Nazis about this yeah. that like you should be able to work on the LSAT and also live your life. You know, like you've got kids in the house, you've got a pizza that's getting delivered, you've got whatever. Like there's good reasons to just I should I need to be able to hit pause here. I'll finish this section tomorrow. Yeah, come back. <laughs> I'll f uh, yeah, right. Exactly. Like, oops, accident. My mom is calling me and it's an emergency. Pause. Mm -hmm. Come back to it tomorrow. That's why it's yep. there. That fucking pause button is not there so that you can pause the section and work on a hard question. Yeah, though. that's funny. And does it does it blur it does. the question? It does blur maybe, the question. Oh, it does blur the question. <laughs> but still, the student is like, I'm going to think about it. Thinking yeah. about it. <laughs> I'm going to pause and. Think about it and then unpause. <laughs> anyway, 
Um, okay, so disable the pause button. We could even have something too, where if you have so many pauses in a certain amount of time, it's kind of like, all right, like what's going on here? You know, um, you sure about this? Because it seems yeah, like you're getting or, interrupted or maybe, a lot, right? I don't know. Maybe we don't actually need this feature. I was kind of half joking when I said feature request. I, but let's let's put it back on the student. Sometimes we have students who I, my, my practice tests are consistently X. Mm -hmm. And then whenever I take the official test, it's something less than X. What's happening here? Yeah. And well, for one thing, it could just be small sample sizes and randomness in the data. And it doesn't really have to mean anything. Another thing could be you're mentally treating the test differently and that's causing you to just get nervous or do different shit on the official test than what you're doing on the practice test. Yeah. But it's also possible that you're doing different shit on the practice test that you're not going to be able to do on the official test. And pausing is one of those things, <laughs> you know, even if it's like pause to go to the bathroom yeah. or pause to go refresh your coffee yeah. or pause to stretch or something. Um, unless you have special accommodations, you're not going to be allowed to do those things on your official mm -hmm. test. Therefore, you should not be doing them on your practice test. As a matter of routine, you should not be doing those things on your practice test. And this was a very excellent student, you know, somebody who can score in the upper 170s. <laughs> but she was cheating. Yeah. yeah. And also don't underestimate the, like what you were just talking about, pausing to go to the bathroom, to get coffee, whatever. You may not think that you're thinking about the LSAT, but the back, <laughs> your mind. Oh, your subconscious is, is like totally solving It is. It's processing information. That's why when you're taking a shower yeah. and you had some problem on your hand earlier in the day and you have an aha moment, you're like, oh, why don't I just do this? Yep. That's because somewhere in your brain, Thousand something was working on it. Thousand percent. Okay, second right. problem. Let's look at the second yeah. issue. Student has a tendency to talk herself into and not out of answer choices because she wants to believe everything she is reading is correct. What, what, what do you think about that? Well, I'm trying to understand that belief. Um, okay, I think I get it. Okay. Here's the thing. Students just, I, you're trained to believe that like, well, if it's in a book, then it's obviously true. Okay. Students incorrectly address answer choices on the law school admission test in that same way. Like they think that they have to accept these answers as fact. And they think that if they don't understand them, it's because they haven't made sense of them. And depending on the question type, maybe that's true sometimes, mm -hmm. but depending on other question types, it's a thousand percent not true. Students need to start with the default presumption that every answer is wrong 80% of the time. And if it doesn't make sense, it's probably just not the answer. Mm -hmm. It's wrong 80% of the time. If it does, and it's under no obligation to make sense if it's the wrong answer. The right answer, the one that you pick, must make perfect sense. The wrong answers don't have to make any sense at all. They're the wrong answers and they frequently don't make sense. Hmm. So this student, yeah. uh, well, let me just sure. finish my thought. This student, I believe that she thinks it's her responsibility to fully understand each wrong answer. 
That is a critical mistake. You do not need to understand each wrong answer. All you need to do is read it far enough to have a better than 80% chance of thinking that it's wrong, right? Our default presumption is it's wrong. You start reading it and it doesn't sound right. Now it's better than 80% chance of being wrong. And at least on the first read through the five answers, you should probably just be letting go of that answer. You shouldn't read it carefully like you're going to write an LSAT book about this question so that you know conclusively exactly why every answer is wrong. You certainly shouldn't be doing that on your first pass through the answer choices. So I think what's going on here is that this student is like, reading the wrong answers and that like when you go into the answer choices, like you've got a virgin, virgin territory, right? Never, never been traversed before five answer choices. Mm -hmm. You need to start thinking about those as the wrong answers because they are four out of five of those are Mm -hmm. wrong. So you're heading into the wrong answer choices. When you start reading a, Mm -hmm. you should expect a to be wrong. If it sounds wrong, you got to let go of it and start reading B. You don't sit there and like meticulously try to fully understand what A is actually saying so that you can conclusively determine whether it's right or wrong. Not on the first read through on the first read through. You should just let go, let go. Oh, now this one's interesting. Let me. Oh, yep. Oh, it makes sense. It answers the question. Okay, that's probably the answer. D makes no sense. E makes no sense. My answer is C. I'm moving on. That's the only way to do the LSAT with any kind of actual speed is to disrespect the wrong answers. And this student is doing the opposite of that. This student is giving the answers way too much respect, assuming that the answers are correct. Like, oh, if I don't understand this, then it's probably the right answer. So I need to read it even more carefully and then convolutedly understand it in some way that would maybe make it make sense. Mm-hmm. But that's not your job. That's what this tutoring report is talking about. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about specifically what you're saying and what this person seems to be doing, talking yourself into answers. Um, flaw questions are the most common question type on the test, at least, well... Maybe must be true, but flaw and must be true questions are very, very common. And flaw questions, right, have those abstract descriptions of what's happening in the passage. And I think that's where people talk themselves into answers most frequently because they'll read an answer choice. It doesn't make sense. And they think that the, the abstract ideas in the flaw answer choice need to connect to something, they do that on reasoning questions yep. too. And it's like reasoning and flaw are very similar. It's like the, the answer, it's, you know, which one of these did the argument mm-hmm. do? That's a reasoning question. Which one of these did the argument do wrong? Mm-hmm. That's a flaw question. And in both cases, students try to talk themselves into the idea that, well, they definitely did that. I mean, they must have done this. I don't understand what this even says, but... Yeah, I think that must be referring to this part of the passage. And it's very possible that it refers to absolutely nothing 
that it has no bearing whatsoever to anything right. that was said in the passage. But you think that or it does. Part yeah. of it refers to something that they did in the passage. Certainly. And then you try to force the, the rest. Other parts of it don't. <laughs> don't refer to anything that they did in the passage yeah. or other parts of it refer to the opposite of something that they did in the passage mm -hmm. or on a flaw question, it will refer to something that the passage did, but it's just not a problem that the passage did. That sure. Thing. Yep. You're like, yeah. <laughs> and the way you avoid that is by predicting the answers in the first place, You're getting mad about the argument yeah. and predicting the answer is the superpower on LSAT logical reasoning. Anyway, um, cool. Read it carefully, predict the answers and then expect the wrong answers to be wrong because they are. If you read all five answers and you think five of them suck, you're right on four out of the five, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I, I would prefer it. I think it's better to read all five and eliminate all five than it is to read all five and have two good answers. Or two answers that you think are good. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I, I really believe that. I think that, I think that you, if you eliminate all five, then, you know, <laughs> you were right on four of them. You, you're probably on track on four of those answers. Like they're wrong for reasons. And you noticed that they're wrong. Mm -hmm. They don't make sense. They're just, they do make sense, but it's exactly opposite or whatever. They're yeah. wrong. And if you eliminate all five, then you can go back through and like double eliminate the ones that you're just a hundred percent sure. Like, Oh, I understand this and it's mm -hmm. wrong. The ones you don't understand, you can read them a little bit more carefully and try to figure out why they're wrong. Cause they still probably are. Yeah. And the one right answer is going to be the one that once you make sense of it, you're going to go, Oh wait, Oh shit. Oh, that's what they meant. Oh, that's the answer. Yeah. Got it. But if you do it the other way, right? The passive way, of reading through the five and being, well, A, yeah, okay, that's a contender. And B, oh, that's a contender too. Yeah. And now let me read C. It's like, oh, dear God, are you kidding me? <laughs> like you, you're already wrong. Mm -hmm. It is not true that both A and B are contenders. They are, one of them is conclusively wrong. And maybe both of them are conclusively wrong. You know, it's interesting as you're talking about that, I was thinking about, what happens sometimes, sometimes I will keep an answer choice open, but if I come across another answer, it's always going to be, well, if, if I'm at all tempted by this second answer, the question can be answered at that moment in time. Do I like it more or less than the other one? So, so right. holding on to two just never makes any sense because when you're on the second oh, one, that you should, that's a good tip. You should know. So we're never, ever, ever getting to three, <laughs> which that's sometimes people are like, well, a, it's, you know, I knew that it was a yeah. or B or, or maybe D mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, Whoa, wait a second. <laughs> the second you liked yeah. B, you should have gone back to a and yep. B and you must murder yeah, one, of them. one of them is worse, which what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And probably, I mean, it's, it's also very possible that both of them are just wrong. Like you're, if, if you're, if students fall in love with the answer choices, just broadly speaking, students think that the answer choices are their friend and the answer choices are going to sort it out mm. for you. And they're not, you should be looking for reasons that the answers are yeah. wrong. You, you should be like grudgingly accepting one out of the five mm -hmm. rather than, 
oh, well, I thought that A and B and D, all of those are good. Mm -hmm. No, they're not. Mm -hmm. You're not picking the best out of contenders. Mm -hmm. You're eliminating almost every answer and you're, you're, you're forced, you know, you're going to happily pick the, the one that's right. But it's like, you're just, you're picking that answer because you couldn't eliminate it. Like it wasn't wrong. Mm -hmm. So you picked it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Want to do this LR question? Let's do it. So it looks like I'm reading. This is test 73 section four question seven. Critic says the perennial image of the city on the hill associates elevated locations with elevated purposes. That's a real weird use of perennial. I mean, I, Perennial means like comes up every year, right? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the usage there. I think that they just mean it to mean like perpetual, all the time, yeah. constant. Yeah. You know, like, so strange specific use of perennial. But anyway, um, yeah, yeah. City on the hill. That does make me think of elevated locations with elevated purposes, like um, a, a, something to aspire to, right? Like an enviable. Well, that's where you put your throne room, right? It's like it's gonna be on the top of the hill that's where they're gonna really do the business of the kingdom okay okay the city's concert hall its newest civic building is located on a spectacular hilltop site okay if our, if we have decided that the art of music is an elevated purpose then it would fit this perennial image perfectly to put it on a spectacular hilltop site it's an elevated location for an elevated purpose. This makes all the sense in the world. And I, but I feel a butt coming just because that's kind of the like habit of the LSAT, right? Is to say, here's what we usually think. Yep. And here it goes. But, but because it is far from the center of the city, it cannot fulfill the purpose of a civic building. So I would stop there and I would say, well, what do you mean it cannot fulfill the purpose of a civic building? Why? Why do civic buildings have to be close to the center of the city? Yep. There's just, you're assuming that without providing that as evidence. That, by the way, had to be the conclusion of the argument just because, you know, there's, we're two thirds of the way through and just feels like that's probably got to be the conclusion and they're going to provide evidence in support of that idea. Yeah. I mean, they certainly could go on to draw some other conclusion. It could be a premise, but you're right. It is a conclusion so far. (laughs) And the only one probably the conclusion of the argument. Yeah. Uh, the argument continues. An example of a successful civic building is the art museum, which is situated in a densely populated downtown area. Well, that doesn't help me honestly, because I still don't understand why civic buildings have to be situ have to be close to downtown. Yeah. You pointing to one successful civic civic building and saying, well, look, that one's downtown. My, I would still, I would come right back and say, yeah, but why can't another civic building be not downtown? All this shows is that being downtown is possible (laughs) and successful. Yeah. It doesn't prevent you from being a successful civic building far away. Yeah. Okay. It encourages social cohesion and makes the city more alive. That seems to be their evidence. You know, it's like, well, if we put this concert hall far from the center of the city, Mm -hmm. then because it's so far away, 
I guess, again, this is an assumption. They're, they're assuming that if it's far away from the center of the city, then it won't encourage social cohesion and it won't make the city more alive. But oddly enough, they don't even say that, right? <laughs> no. Well, yeah. it's not that odd, right? Yeah. Because that's the game we're playing here yeah. is to just think about what the argument has and what it doesn't have. And the missing piece here is, you know, if I'm the lawyer for this critic, I'm like, okay, if I understand you correctly, what you are trying to say, but have not yet put it in the record, is that if you're far from the center of the city, then you cannot encourage social cohesion and make the city more alive, therefore not fulfill the purpose of a civic building, which is to encourage social cohesion and make the city more alive. Is that what you're saying? Even then, you'd need to say that, right? Because you never even said that the purpose is to do those things. So, right. (laughs) So, right. So we have to, like, you know, that's why, like, that's why your cell phone contract is 50 pages of garbage that no one will ever read, Mm. right? It's because the lawyers got in there and they were like, well, wait a second, we need to make this watertight. Mm Mm-hmm. So we're going to have to spell out every single assumption forever. And that's what the lawyer's job is going to be here is to say, okay, critic, I get the big picture. Now let me fill in all the missing pieces that you haven't filled in. And so one of them that I'm looking for here is if you're far away, I think the, the correct answer, I don't even know what type of question this is, but it has to be something like if you're far away from the city, you're not going to encourage social cohesion. Because mm-hmm. why Why does that happen? Why, wh- wh- why not? Maybe people, yeah, gather and drive there. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, and I get it. Like, people are like, well, if it's, you know, if it's out in the suburbs, I mean, the 49ers, like the stadium in Santa Clara hasn't done shit for the city of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, yeah, I mean, I'm not an idiot. I understand that that's probably true in real life, but in a legal brief, we need to spell that out explicitly that, Hey, if the stadium is 40 goddamn miles away from the city, then it's not going to create the social cohesion that a downtown ballpark would. Yeah. Um, Okay. The question says, the critic's reasoning most closely conforms to which one of the following principles? Um, I read that as a must-be-true question, or sorry, a supported question. I want an answer that is not more than what the critic actually said. I really, I, I think I'm a, a, I would really be approaching this like a necessary assumption question. Mm-hmm. What is the argument, right? yeah, assuming, like, yeah. Well, what does the critic have to agree with mm-hmm, here? Mm-hmm. So whether we call this a must be true, a supported or a necessary assumption question, it's all really the same game. Yep. The author is going to have to agree with one of these five things. This is what the author was saying. They just didn't say it. Yep. Okay. A, a civic building that is located in a downtown area should, if possible, be located on an elevated site. <laughs> Absolutely not. That one's 100% eliminated because this critic is complaining about this concert hall um, being too far from the city. The, the, the argument is not like we, sh- we have to put our things on elevated sites. <laughs> yeah. That's not their in, point at all. In the downtown area, it's like, okay, we're going to build a little hill here and put it up. Um, I mean, you'd pick A if you, if you like only listen to the first sentence. Yeah. If you're being really lazy and skimming the surface here, 
you know, you read, the, you read a little bit of the critics argument, you look at a and you go, yeah, elevated hill, elevated location for elevated purpose. A mm-hmm. makes perfect sense. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. If you didn't actually read the critics argument, B a city needs to have civic buildings. If it is to have social cohesion. Yeah. Yeah. But where the purpose <laughs> of a civic building I think according to this critic is to encourage social cohesion, yeah. but the critic is not going so far as to say that if you don't have civic buildings, you're not going to have civic, uh, social cohesion. B is too specific. It's too strong. The critic did not say that this is necessary for social cohesion. The critic said that it is the purpose of a civic building to encourage social cohesion or the critic assumed that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, C a civic building with an elevated purpose should be located on a spectacular site. Again, just like A. If you only read the first sentence, you might pick that. Yep. D. The downtown area of a city should be designed in a way that com- complements the area's civic buildings. <laughs> That's not what we're talking about. Uh, what? We're not, we're not talking about how the downtown should be designed. We're talking about what is the purpose of civic buildings? Can they be accomplished? Talking about close <laughs> this new concert hall. You know, we're we're talking about <laughs> we're talking. We really are arguing about this particular concert hall and whether it can or cannot fulfill the purpose of a civic building and what that purpose is. Uh, we are not talking about the aesthetics of the downtown area, which is what D seems to be about. E, the purpose of a civic building is to encourage social cohesion and to make a city more alive. Yeah, I mean, if this is a necessary assumption question, that's obviously the answer. The author does have to agree with that. The critic's reasoning does conform very closely to that principle. I mean, I really think that that is a must be true according to this critic. Yeah, right? if, if you don't accept Without that. saying it. Well, yeah, if you don't accept E then the purpose of the last sentence makes no sense. Like, why Why did the author mention that? As a premise? For what? Just a random side note? Clearly, the author thinks that's how these things connect back to their purpose. Yeah, and I mean, I said E way before I even read the question, right? I Like, I go fast by disrespecting the wrong answers. The way I disrespect the wrong answers is that I know what the answer is before I even read the question like half the time or 75% of the time. And the way I do that is I read the argument really carefully and I attack it. Yeah. I knew that the critic was trying to conclude that this particular concert hall cannot fulfill the purpose of a civic building because it's too far from the center of the city. And I read the rest of it and I, about the art museum. And I said, well, okay, so that's one successful one that's downtown who gives a shit. What about that though? Oh, it encourages social cohesion and makes the city more alive. Oh, oh. And then I, you know, I said, so what you're trying to tell me is Mm -hmm. that the purpose of a civic building is to encourage social cohesion and make the city more alive. That's literally word for word what he says. Yep. And I, I did that before I even read the question, mm-hmm. let alone any of the answer choices. Um, uh, and I'm not, that's like not, we're not bragging. We're not showing off. We're, we're trying to encourage you to do the LSAT in the, 
easy way that it is obviously intended to be done. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the two assumptions <laughs> that we clearly identified. Anyways, nice. That's that. That's that. Okay, so we have an email from Jennifer. Should we tackle that? We have time, I think. Oh, absolutely. I was notified this morning that my college had expunged an F from my transcripts because I was hospitalized during a final. I can't believe it worked. Thanks so much, Jennifer. So this is someone who took our recent advice on the show. Did we actually respond to an email from Jennifer or she was just listening and then applied that advice to her situation? She applied analogous advice about analogous situations. Yeah, and asked for an expungement. Right. So we have heard of this happening recently where undergrads or even people who graduated, uh, and I think it's possible, I can't remember exactly with Jennifer's case, mm. but she might have graduated 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Looks at her transcripts. Fuck, this F is really killing me for law school admissions. Yeah. You know, your undergraduate school has a vested interest in you being successful in life. Yeah. Call up the records office, send an email, send a letter, ask for special treatment. All you need to do is give them any reason. And Jennifer said, oh, well, that particular F... You know, I couldn't take the final because I was in the hospital. And, you know, you you didn't get it expunged from your transcript at the time, maybe because you had no idea that you would ever go to law school anytime in the future. Yeah. But now you're about to apply to law school and you're going to do everything in your power to try to, um, you know, just put your best foot forward on your law school admission. And I don't know. <laughs> So I don't know what she did, emailed or phone called or whatever, but now that trans that F is no longer on her transcript. By the way, you talked about emailing, calling, and I don't know what other option there is. Write a physical letter. <laughs> Write a physical letter. I would say of those three, you can do all of them, but I would definitely call. I just think so many people these days don't yeah. call. They avoid the phone and it's oh, yeah. fast it's also like you learn way more. You're talking to somebody who's in the office and you're like, look, I'm trying to get this expunged. And they're like, who knows what they said to her? Maybe they said, oh, what are you trying to get it expunged for? Well, I was sick. Oh, you were sick. Okay. Were you hospitalized? Yeah, I was hospitalized. Oh, well, mention that because we've expunged things before for hospitalization. You're not going to get that from an email. They're going to write you back and say, yeah, sorry. You either gave them the information they wanted or you didn't. And they might just deny you. You talk to people and they start to spill information. And that's what you're trying to get. Pick up the damn phone, kids. <laughs> yep, I totally agree. Call and talk to people. Learn as much as you can. Ask for special treatment. Uh, that is a, a good point here. I mean, I don't know if Jennifer actually called or not, but that is a good tip. The most important thing, because yeah, email's so easy to ignore. Mm -hmm. They could just shunt you off, forget about it, just delete. Yeah. They could just pretend they never even received it. Yep. They can't do that with a phone call. You're going to get through to somebody eventually. Um, and yeah, I, I, it seems like it's open season on this type of shit. 
you know, if you're not happy with your undergraduate GPA, one of the most important things it seems like you could do is you could potentially go back and kind of do some revisionist history on that, on your academic record. Yeah. And, uh, whatever evidence, Hey, I mean, and it's like the most ultimate, it's like such a lawyerly thing, Mm -hmm. right? Like lawyers in trial, half of the damn trial is about what evidence can and cannot be admitted. Yep. You know, it's not like TV. It's not like where, where we found out that this guy has previously done exactly this crime before. Therefore he's automatically guilty. Yeah. It's not like that. Instead, it's like, well, everybody knows that this guy has done exactly this crime before. Mm -hmm. Are we going to have that information in the trial or not? Yeah. (laughs) Because if it's in the trial, there's no fucking way he's not going to be convicted. But the lawyers can very frequently keep that out of the trial. And that's what Jennifer did here is she just that F potentially would have convicted her and she got it off of her record. So good job, Jennifer. That's a very lawyer thing you did. That's awesome. That is awesome. Uh, Want to read this email from Angie? We talked about this a little bit on LSAT Demon Daily, so we don't have to take forever on it. Sure. But why don't you go ahead? Hey, hello, Demon Team. I've heard Nathan encourage listeners on multiple occasions to read more books as a way to prepare for law school and even improve at the LSAT. I know he's a big fan of using one's local library, so I wanted to share a resource that I've found super helpful since I haven't heard it mentioned on the podcast. There's a great app called Libby that connects public libraries, sorry, that connects to public libraries so you can access their collection of digital and audiobooks for free. All you need is a library card, and you can immediately start reading books on your phone, tablet, or Kindle through the app. If you don't have a library card, some will allow you to sign up for one right there in the app. Others require a physical card, which you can usually request online. Side note, you can connect more than one library membership to access multiple collections. Perhaps this app is old news to you, old news, and you already knew all about it, but I thought it might be worth mentioning for listeners looking up to their looking to up their reading. I took Nathan's advice to heart, and since using the app, I've tripled the number of books I'm reading annually. Thank you for everything you do, Angie. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned it on the on LSAT Demon Daily. I downloaded the app. I'm gonna give it a whirl. Did it? Yeah. <laughs> it just it changed my life. I thank you, Angie, for getting me on board with this finally. But uh, yeah, there was a book that I've been waiting a month to get a physical copy of, and in less than 60 seconds, I had downloaded the Libby app, connected it to my local library and reserved and checked out and had wirelessly delivered to my Kindle a copy of this book. I was able to start reading it within like literally 60 seconds. Yeah, that's awesome. And I had been waiting a month for the physical copy. So uh, if you're serious about reading and you definitely should be, um, you should get, you should get the Libby app. Yeah. Um, I have this old ass Kindle paperwhite. It it's, uh, it's like got scratches on the screen and stuff. I've treated it like shit and it's still badass. It's like so awesome. This thing, it's a magical device. The battery lasts forever. I can carry around however many more books than you could possibly ever read in a month. You know, I mean, it's just like magic. So it is anyway, magic. Thank you, Andrew. I did want to say I was thinking about books the other day, and um, 
You know, if you could sit down and talk to someone who's an expert in whatever, right? Nanotechnology, cryptocurrency, whatever, you could learn so much from them. And yet books are just that very opportunity, right? And in some ways they're even better because someone has actually sat down and way, thought about it. Way, way better. Yeah. Way it's better. It's organized. <laughs> I read half of this book, ADHD 2.0. Yeah. I read half of it last night. Yeah. If I sat down and talked to this dude, there's no way I would get as much out of it as I got out of 90 minutes worth of like skimming rapidly through his book that he wrote. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When he starts going off in some side tangent that I don't give a fuck about next, boom, like skip pages. Yeah. You know, I get the point of what you're doing, but you're going to go on and on and on about it. Next, next, next. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's like this guy's entire brain is in this book and now it's in my Kindle mm -hmm. and I get to use it however I want without like, I don't have to hear about his fucking kids is mm -hmm. what I'm saying. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, and you can just tap into so many people. So if you're not reading books, um, start. That's all. Start and get the Libby app. That's the place to start. Yep. Cool. You can be LSAT famous and you should. You should email help at thinkinglsat.com. Uh, our agendas are mostly built of your questions. If you are a day one listener we have a day one assignment for you. Um, this episode is coming out on Monday, March 28th, which means that tomorrow, Tuesday, March 29th, we are going to be interviewing Judy, the YouTube <laughs> lawyer. Uh, go on YouTube, look for Judy, the YouTube lawyer. You can watch some of her very provocative videos about uh, how much of a ripoff law school is. Um, she's kind of a fascinating person and she went to Georgetown law, by the way, she's not like somebody who went to some shitty law school and then was unhappy. She went to Georgetown and uh, had a, looked like potentially could have been a, a pretty decent career lined up. And then, uh, it turned out to be not what she had thought it was. And now she's pretty vocal about trying to talk people out of law school. So, um, go to, YouTube, check out a couple of her videos and then email us because we need questions uh, to ask Judy tomorrow. So that's help at thinkinglsat.com if you would like to ask us some questions for uh, Judy, the YouTube lawyer. If you have questions about the LSAT demon, you can email help at lsatdemon.com. You can check out our other podcast, LSAT Demon Daily. That was episode 343 yep. of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school. <laughs>